0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So today is going to be the broadcasting that I'm going to be putting out for Cliff and Stuart Connectly. This is Give Me an Answer. They are our pastors over at Grace Community Church over in New Canaan, Connecticut. The episode is going to be titled, We Are All Rebels Against God. Now, before we dive into this, I would like to, of course, encourage everyone to go ahead and like and subscribe this podcast and this, even this episode. So like the episode, subscribe to the podcast. Um, if you really enjoy this kind of stuff, tell your friends to do it. It really helps boost this channel up and keep it going. So the word of God gets out to more people, goes into the algorithm again, and just everyone gets to listen to it. I mostly go on Spotify, but so anywhere you're listening to podcasts currently. So as we get into this episode... I actually wanted to put a side note here before I start. I've had experiences like this, like Cliff and Stuart are talking about, by people who believe in all sorts of things. I work with Mormons, with Jehovah's Witnesses, with atheists and whatnot. And they all claim to have their own personal beliefs, that God doesn't fill this hole or whatnot. Or they would say, in essence, yes, God is okay, but I can't believe in God due to lack of evidence. And so I'll ask them, Okay, so what do you believe in, and what's the evidence of it of what you believe in being reliable? And as Cliff and Stuart point out, the answers are excruciatingly embarrassing, and are in- so intellectually dry it makes the Sahara Desert look like a like a liquid like a like a ocean paradise. So, anyways, without further ado, please enjoy. Give me an answer. We are all rebels against God.
1: If someone says to me, Cliff, I've really studied the Gospels and I can't believe in Jesus, the problem is not so much intellectual as it is moral. We're all arrogant rebels against God. And because of that, our thinking can get very clouded. And you listen to people say, I can't believe in Christ. And I say, fine, what's what's the option that's better than Christ? And the answers that I get to that question are embarrassing. I can't believe in God because there's not enough evidence that God exists. Okay, fine, I hear you. Then pray tell, what do you believe in and what's the evidence that so supports it that it's convinced you that it's true? And the answers that I get to those questions are embarrassingly trivial and poorly thought out. God has left more than enough evidence for any thinking person to understand God is alive and real. There's more than enough historical evidence of his life, teachings, death, and resurrection for any thinking person to put their faith in Christ. But if I'm going to run away from God, if I'm going to be blinded by my arrogance and my rebellion, that's a problem. We're all just like the prodigal son. He looks into his dad's face in, in Luke chapter 15 and says, Dad, I want the inheritance, the money that I would receive upon your death. In other words, Dad, I want to live as if you were dead. And to follow the hands the inheritance of the son, and he runs off, and he squanders it in wild living. He loses all his money. He's in the pigsty, feeding pigs. And suddenly he remembers his father's love. And he says, you know something? The servants in my dad's house are being treated better than the way I'm being treated. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go home. And I'm going to say, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Would you take me back as a servant? Young man gets up, walks home, father standing in front of the house with his arms wide open, welcoming the prodigal son home.
2: Doesn't it say in Revelation, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, regardless of belief or following jesus so like if 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 it's not out of love aren't we all going to do it anyway so like and, and matthew says that not everyone who believes in jesus not everyone knows me will get into the kingdom of heaven so isn't there a difference between actually following god and simply believing in him
1: very good and that's the main point of the book of james there's sincere faith and there's insincere faith and if I say that I believe in Jesus and I hate you, John writes, I'm a liar, in 1 John. And James points out, faith without works is dead. And Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 21 to 23 said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, perform any miracles, cast out demons, Then I will tell them, truly I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. So I believe in Jesus, and I hate you because you're of a different race. And John writes in 1 John, you're a hypocrite, Cliff. Because if you think you can say, I love God, who I cannot see, and hate my brother who I can see, I'm a stinking phony. It's that simple, guys. So, faith in Christ is not an excuse. do evil and a lot of rock stars and musicians today have that all mixed up a lot of people do at Texas State a lot of people and a lot of stars say oh yeah I think Christianity is cool I can do whatever I want to today and then I just pray for forgiveness tomorrow baloney you put your faith in Christ you're saying Lord Jesus thank you for dying on a cross for my sin the part of me that nailed you to a cross I hate and if I think I can just keep on asking for forgiveness, as a game. No, that's not a game. That's insincere. That's hypocrisy. Does that make sense? Thank you, sir, for raising that issue. Somebody else have an issue they want to raise. I
0: have a question. Yes, sir. You mentioned this phrase that we're made in God's image. Yes. Could you describe more of what that actually means?
1: Great question what does it mean to be created in the image of god he has a rational mind why do i believe that look the way he dressed himself this morning in an orderly fashion yeah. I it, bro. you bet man reason a thinking mind is a gift from a rational god think about what an atheist is saying an atheist is saying the rational mind comes from the non-rational That, my friends, is foolishness. You don't get reason from the non-rational. You don't get reason from the irrational. So to be created in the image of God means, partially, you have a rational mind. It's a gift from God. Think, develop your mind. Reason is good. It's part of what it means to be a human being. Second point about being created in the image of God. You have, the desire to be personal, the desire to love. Bravo. A machine cannot love. It takes a human being to love. To love is to work for the well being of somebody else. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. This innate capacity that all of us have to love. Third point you and I have the ability to be creative. God is the creator. He creates us to reflect himself. He gave us the gift of creativity. Hopefully that's what you guys are developing here at the university. The ability to be creative in different fields of knowledge. Fourth point, the image of God is expressed in your conscience. You and I have the innate human ability to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice. And fifth point is, you and I, have longings to last, longings for eternity. Yeah, very good. You're created in the image of an eternal God, and death is an enemy. Death Sphinx. So you're created not by accident. You're created by a God who is rational, who loves, who's creative, who is just, and who is eternal. And to be created in his image means We are created to reflect him.
3: Stuart, what do you think? (laughs) Yeah, it gets back again to this point. I'd say it's a great question because oftentimes people say, well, image of God, what God? And that's subjective as well. But no, it's not a subjective interpretation that we're after. It's the image of God in the sense of it's objective because it's never wavering. And we get it straight out of scripture in terms of image of God is we have these types of rights that never fade no matter what, no matter disabilities, no matter race, no matter gender, no matter socioeconomic status. And what's so interesting is in our culture that's so pluralistic and postmodern and relativistic where people are trying to say this, where it's just, oh, you know, Joshua, it's your interpretation. Historically speaking, it was never understood in that kind of way for thousands of years. No, people have understood it Christian, atheist, or agnostic to be. No, that's an objective understanding where you have actual worth no matter what. So you're always worthy of preservation, always. And if you take a different perspective on you're not creating the image of God, you either, which many students believe on this campus, is you create your own meaning, you create your own value. Well yes, that breaks down immediately, becomes subjective. Or other people create it for you. Your mom and dad say whether you have value or not. Okay, they can be fairly consistent. But again, that's not objective, that's fully their subjective opinion. Now, February 2020 to August 2020, depression has increased threefold, exponentially more than what it has been. The image of God plays in beautifully to this, because again, there's a recent study that came out about SSRIs, that sadly, we think SSRIs so often cure something like depression, but actually, they've found SSRIs have little to do with raising serotonin levels. And so this gets back to what is your worldview? What is the Christian worldview and how does it answer why you do have worth and value, no matter what your neurochemicals are saying? But I think it has more to do with a worldview. Because ultimately, people commit suicide for mainly one reason, loss of meaning. Loss of meaning in their lives. So do you have objective meaning? Well. <laughs> Freak me out or is it purely subjective? And the subjective piece is is the hard piece. Good. All righty. He's got two little
1: daughters. I get to be their grandparent. I love to take my granddaughters in my arms and walk up and down the driveway. They're only 1 year old and 3 year old. And I love to sing to them, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, why would I waste my time singing that song to little girls? I'll tell you why. Because those little girls are going to grow up and they're going to go to middle school and high school. And they're going to be taught at school that your value depends upon how well your body's proportioned, how beautiful you are. Your value depends on your GPA, your grade point average. Your value depends upon the cost of your clothing. That is all a lie. Your value comes from the God who created you in his image for a purpose, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you try to find your value in your looks, in your intelligence, in the size of your bank account, you will ultimately be an empty person because all of that will ultimately fail you. But when you believe in Christ and base your identity, your value in Him, that is a solid foundation for your security as a human being. Thanks for raising that issue.
0: A lot of times, in like especially our history classes, we'll see stories like Noah's and Noah in the flood, right? But then, from what I remember, there were also a couple of histories or uh, stories from ancient history that also matched, like. Gilgamesh Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh other, yeah there's a couple other stories right so how can we prove that those things like the Noah's Ark story is factual in that sense and not just something that another culture created to go along with their God Yahweh's story and we can trust that to be actually part of the historical narrative of Christianity and thus also trust the other history and other parts of the Bible and not just be a social construct of that just that one culture you bet that makes
1: sense sure it does all right it's real simple professor stands up in front of class and says look at the gilgamesh epic look at the genesis flood account ha 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 it's obviously all just mythology obviously there was never a flood because you got the gilgamesh epic on one hand and you got the noah flood account in genesis on the other but what the professor fails to acknowledge is Is it not possible that there really was a great flood and different cultures struggled to communicate it? And that is why you have the Gilgamesh epic and the Noah flood account, because you've got different people groups, different cultures trying to communicate, wow, there was a great flood. Now obviously the point of that professor is ha, ha, ha. The Bible is a fairy tale. All right, fine, professor. But I hope you'll be honest about your motives here. I hope you'll be honest, professor, about what you're driving at, which is the Bible is a pack of myths, fantasy. Now, what are the tests, professor, that you use to determine historical reliability? Please ask your professors that question. What are the tests that you use to determine whether any document is historically reliable or not? And the answers that you'll get to that question, I dare say, will be embarrassingly superficial. I would encourage you to come up with your own tests that you use to determine historicity. For myself, I use four. Literary style, archeological evidence, manuscript evidence, internal consistency and if any document passes those tests I accept it as historically reliable if any but document does not ex- pass those tests I do not accept it as historically reliable Nothing sacred about my tests put together your own tests that you use consistently when it comes to studying African history Chinese history US history the Quran the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama Buddha the Gospels and then I think you'll find, if you're honest, that the Gospels have an incredibly high degree of historical credibility and reliability. So simply read the Gospels as history and ask yourself does the historical evidence point to Jesus being the truth or not?
2: We well, mentioned archaeology, right? Yeah. And I think going back to the flood, now, recent studies kind of show that uh, there was a global flood, it was a ice so, you know, why is it that so many Christians follow this seven-day belief system in creation, whereas all the evidence, including the flood thing, it indicates that this story was a global event that happened, you know, 10,000 years ago, even further back, all this ice age melting, so like... We're ignoring geographical evidence of of a long Earth, Mm -hmm. and we're following what fundamentalist belief has only been 200 years old, so how does that line up?
1: Well, my plea to you is, be honest in reading the Bible. And if the Bible says something, take it seriously. If the Bible is silent, take that seriously. The Bible does not answer the question, how old is the Earth? The Bible does not answer the question, exactly how long did God take to create? The Bible does not answer the question, what process did God use to create? I do not know. From the Bible, how old the earth is, the process that God used to create. I don't know. From the Bible, because the Bible is silent.
3: Stuart, what do you think? I think we got to remember that the Bible is not just one book as well. You know, you think about the canon coming together in the 300s. So you think Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New. And the historical narrative and genre that's written in the New, manuscript evidence, like you talked about, in terms of also the dating being so close to the events themselves. That is so much more attainable. We can ascertain what exactly history is saying there with 36 sources that are outside of the Bible and within. I mean, you can go to the bank with that in terms of hitting pay dirt historically. Most scholars would say you only need four sources. <clears throat> I mean, that's incredible. But what obviously happened is Hume comes along, makes fun of the flood story, clearly makes fun of so many different talking snake and everything else, and just wants to point at the Old Testament and make a mockery. And then what comes out of that is in the 1800s, you have rationale, reasonableness, versus this type of skepticism that says, you need to get to this level of thinking where discount the supernatural completely. So it's reasoning versus rationale. And in Hume's day, it was all about rationale. And rationale was connected to empiricism, which leads to our scientific age, which is you can only trust something and take it as true and valid if you can empirically prove it. Well, historians would say, what in the world? That is a total crock. It's a joke. We're going to lose all of our history then if we're going to take that type of worldview. And so going back historically is crucial, weighing the evidence. But also remembering for me, even with Christ talking about obviously how much weight he puts in the Old Testament, he clearly believes it. The question becomes there are tremendous scholars on both sides of the coin who will say, was it an actual snake? Was it a universal or local flood? And have to debate that. But that was thousands of years ago versus what we get in the Gospels, which becomes slightly, in my mind, much clearer in terms of what we can really say actually occurred. Do you think, let me ask you a question back. So you as a Christian, do you hold up the Old Testament just as much as the New? Or do you look at the New Testament and say New Covenant?
2: Well, I mean, I'm tempted to do that, right? Yeah. But, I mean, obviously I eat shrimp obviously i'm wearing mixed clothing so i don't follow the law of moses but you know that that brings up an interesting, right the festivals that we hold today i know a couple days ago we were discussing halloween but like christmas easter all these stuff have pagan sources or origins and stuff (laughs) jesus maybe wouldn't have celebrated his birthday the way that we do right so like If we want to be like that New Testament church, why are we doing all this stuff that's really only 200 years old doctrine, right? If we're going to discuss Old Testament versus New Testament, like, shouldn't we, if we want to be like Christ, follow the law of Moses as Jesus?
3: Yeah, in many ways. So the the, the Ten Commandments, obviously, are talked about within the New. And I take personally proscriptive versus descriptive. And... Prescriptive is what we are called to do today and how to live out. So what did Moses talk about? You know, the 10 Commandments, obviously we're supposed to take because it's repeated so many times within the New. But so much in the Old Covenant, you brought up some great points. Fish, you know, how you obviously wear certain clothing. A woman out here the other day was talking about cross-dressing, is that okay? And we have to start to sift out and decide, not by ourselves, again, it comes back to context, it comes back to authorship. It comes back to how does God want us truly to look at this passage? And we have to decide ourselves. Okay, this is prescriptive in our lives because it's repeated in the New Testament. It's so clearly connected to how God could be speaking to us because it's certainly consistent with what scripture talks about. But your interesting point in terms of pagan festivals and how many Christians ultimately will celebrate something like Christmas in a certain way. If you look in Rome, If you go to any church, you go to any temple, most structures, you will so clearly see when pagans dominated the culture, when Christians did. And you will see something like a mosque. You will see something like an ancient temple, where you will clearly see on this building itself the cross at the very top. But then there was also a cross about 300 years previous. And so paganism built on top and then Christianity built on top. So, that's always been the type of borrowing, or in my, in my view, I think it's called subversive fulfillment for Christians, which is the following. We go and see pagan ideals. Paul clearly did it in Athens, Mars Hill, where he talked about, you're clearly religious. That's a great thing. You pagans, you have some rituals where you're trying to get outside of yourselves and we're some type of transcendent source. Good thing. He calls it good. He connects with them in that kind of way. But then he says, this is far better. And so for Christians to say, sure, there's some type of pagan historical beginnings. We're not gonna be fearful of that, but here's a better way how we're gonna build off of it. And that's what Paul does throughout his ministry.
2: But isn't that an adulteration of the original meaning or or the original faith? Like, wouldn't that be kind of like idolatry? if we're changing or or building off of something that Jesus said in order to kind of fit our modern standards,
3: It's a, certainly, it's a balance. you got to toe the line, right? You can easily fall off the cliff. So you have to be very careful. But I think there's many things within our culture today that we don't even realize we adopt from secular beginnings, right? And we don't run from them. You know, for example, why why are some Christians out here going ahead and, and working in certain magazine businesses like GQ? A close friend of mine who was high up in GQ magazine. I mean, look, there's some pretty racy stuff in GQ magazine. And so you could say, is he being a, a Christian or not? I mean, that's, that's pretty pagan. And so Christmas, though, specifically, because you brought up Christmas, if you are worshiping in the way where you're getting back to Christmas carols that talk about I mean, how we are all sinners, how a light has shone. I mean, oh Holy Night, holiness. I don't see any pagan roots connected to those types of doctrinal pieces. The weird thing about me is I sing Christmas carols to my kids all year long because I like them so much. So there's no really special part of Christmas carols until we get to Christmas for me because I've been singing them all year long to my kids. My poor children, but I just love it. Silent Night, O Holy Night. Because you have, so, you have the gospel so clearly, penetratingly hit us in the face through those types of Christmas carols. So I don't see any kind of pagan connection in them. And that's why I believe personally for me, what hits me hardest in terms of growing my faith actually is when Christmas comes around. Because you have worship through these hymns. You have a focus on Jesus as God incarnate. You have his birth. You have more fellowship in a way. And so yes, you want to be very careful not mixing obviously. We, so, we see so many different cults out here. We so, I mean, I'm not going to pick on any right now that have adopted certain doctrines and foisted those doctrines on top of Christianity, and they've totally become lost. So it takes discernment. It takes wisdom.
2: We're looking at this from an English-American perspective, but when we read the Bible, for for sakes, like if we read it in, in Hebrew, right? It's so often that like the language is very varied, right? So like Spanish is closer to English than English is to Hebrew. And so if I told you a joke in Spanish, I'd have, probably have to explain it to you. Not saying like, I don't know if you speak Spanish That's or not, right? But like, I'd probably have to explain it to you and it takes some time. So like Hebrew going into English, much longer, much more layers of translation. How do we even know we got the true meaning if, if you know, some Orthodox Jews say, well, you know, if you take the word virgin, uh, when it, in Isaiah when it's talking about the prophecy it actually means young woman so like how do we know that, that the interpretation is, is correct or the better one if, if we're looking at doctrinally right because I mean even the Bible you know when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls they found what copies of the book of Enoch there too that's not included in canon but it's, it's part of some Hebrew tradition so you know what is it that we're losing in translation there? right it's doctrinally Right. or or are we getting the doctrine
3: right and how do we know that we're getting it right and that's why oral histories are so crucial in looking at the gospels rather than oral tradition see oral tradition buys into the gospels as legend that came about after years and years people totally disagreed on what in the world the gospel the central message of jesus christ was all about and so it spread, and it was totally different. Nobody had similar interpretations, and somehow that's why denominational differences started, and you get three thousand three hundred denominations, and, hey, look into them, guys. You Christians don't believe anything that's even remotely similar. But in truth, oral histories is what it's all about. Richard Bauckham is the top source on this. Out of St. Andrews, we got to talk to him this uh, COVID last couple of years and he is the top scholar on the New Testament, and he's the one who fleshes this out beautifully. If you look into the 500, if you look into Malchus cutting off Peter's ear, if you look into Luke 24, and what goes on with Cleopas talking on the road, and all of a sudden you have Jesus showing up, you have all these names that are footnotes saying, go talk to these people. Before they were dying off, This message was written down and spread through manuscripts, but that was when they were dying off. It spread through oral history and it spread so quickly to the entire known world. And they agreed in all the essentials, 1 Corinthians 15, three through eight, that Jesus Christ obviously existed, historical figure, that he lived, rose from, died and rose from the dead. That essential piece that Paul wrote was all over the known world. And so nobody disagreed with it. And if it wasn't all over the known world, if it had just stayed, say, within the 12 disciples or within a small community, then I think it could have been later on become legend over time because of different languages and all, and all that. But because it spread so quickly, people couldn't say, hey, mine's different than yours. No, it, it had already spread out and the essentials were there. I'd like to invite you to Grace Community Church, located at 365 Lukeswood Road in New Canaan, Connecticut. Our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. on Sundays. Hope you can join us.
0: welcome on back to Next Generation Saints. I hope you enjoyed this video ministry that you just encountered and that the uh, message that Cliff and Stuart brought forward is a blessing to you in any kind of way that God has presented it to you. So again, before you get going, go ahead and like the episode, subscribe to the podcast, and I hope this was thought-provoking to you and really makes you take a step back and really think about why it is you believe what you believe in if it's not Jesus. And I really hope that it has strengthened your faith and has um, given you food for thought about why you believe in Jesus Christ. So, until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless y'all, my dearly beloved.